Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Chava. And I'm Josh. And today we're going to be talking about the DS9 episode Sanctuary and Refugees. Welcome back, Chava. Thanks. I had a little hiatus for the summer. <laughs> it was pretty... Uh... I went to did some, well, not quite solo projects because we collaborated with the authors and with Heidi and we had um, Maxine do her devar. So it's been a busy summer for Star Trek and the Jews, but I'm really happy to have you back uh, right in time for, for New Year. Like happy almost New Year, Shana Tova. Yeah, Shana Tova. I, I can't believe this has been like almost two years now. Yeah, we'll have done, we'll have done two full calendar years in December. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. My mom was sad that I wasn't on it this time. <laughs> she was like, you're not there. <laughs> uh, I I like this time of year. Like, I feel like, I feel like Tishrei and the Jewish New Year is like my personal New Year too, because. Right. Know, Your it's birthday. Like, it's my birthday and yeah. back to school, even though I don't go to school, but my wife does and my kid does and I don't know something about it just feels like more of like a season of change I I really like new year also it's kind of the only holiday that is really just about praying I find which I don't actually love but I do like Jewish new year anyway I like Rosh Hashanah I like the praying stuff of that though most of the stuff that we'll do this year is not chul because like we're going to go to outdoor services, but mm. I don't know, like weather and toddler and who knows how long will last there. So I feel like this one will be, at least this year, we're going to like do family stuff, which will be nice. That is really nice. Do you uh, fast on Yom Kippur? I do fast. Yeah. Yeah. So is this like... I should say I'm like a cheat fast too. I, I, I have a big glass of water first thing in the morning because otherwise I'm just like the most miserable person in the world. Come I'm just like the most three miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just the most miserable person in the world. <laughs> and I, I just get like a migraine and it's like, forget Same. it. I'm just going to take like a big glass of water in the morning and that'll be my break and I'll deal with it. Yeah. I and mean, I don't do fair. any other fast days. Yeah, I, I used to do Tisha B'Av also. Oh, um, I, sometimes I do Tisha B'Av. Yeah, I shouldn't say I don't do any other ones. I, yeah, I used to do it religiously. I remember religiously, right? Yeah. Who doesn't? But now, honestly, it's just too long. It's in the summer. <laughs> My head kills. It's like, it just feels like cultish to me to make <laughs> myself do that. <laughs> so we watched the Deep Space Nine episode Sanctuary. I think it's been a little while since we spent like a whole episode of our show on one episode of Star Trek but this is a good one for it because I think there's a lot to unpack and it's very relevant to the day so I'll give a short summary a damaged ship arrives through the wormhole and its crew is rescued at Deep Space Nine there's screen refugees from the Gamma Quadrant and three million more are on the other side of the wormhole fleeing oppression and in need of resettlement Despite some tensions aboard the station, the Federation commits immediately to resettling their population and begins the search for a suitable world. However, the Screens wish to settle on Bajor, in a depopulated region scarred by the Cardassian occupation. The Bajorans refuse their request, saying that they can't help others until they've looked after their own. Some of the Screens wish to stay. A young boy commandeers a vessel and tries to land on Bajor, resulting in his death. The Screens accept Federation assistance to settle on Draylon 2, but their leader, Hanik, warns Major Kira, I think you've made a terrible mistake, all of you. 
Maybe we could have helped you. Maybe we could have helped each other. So what do you think? Do you think they made a mistake? Um, I think there's a lot to unpack with this episode. Well, that was kind of what, like, Adam and I looked at each other at the end and we were like, do you think that it was a mistake? Like, Okay, so Star Trek sort of breaks the premise of this episode, right? Because this this episode's, like, loosely based on, I mean, it's based on a lot of uh, historical situations, but I think the one that was top of mind for the writers was the boat people, um, a situation quite familiar to people right now because we're seeing something similar happen in Afghanistan. But this was Vietnamese refugees leaving Vietnam during and after the U.S. withdrawal because they feared reprisals for various reasons related to the U.S. presence in Vietnam. And Star Trek sort of breaks the tension of that because Star Trek sets out to like tell a good morality tale, but there isn't a a united federation of planets in the real world like there isn't some benevolent there's no draylon too right here (laughs) you go you've got everything for you perfect like that doesn't exist yeah like you have this other planet that's perfect so like you're gonna be fine yeah i think it's worthwhile to consider the episode almost putting in a box that like unlimited federation capacity and, and just sort of look at the decision making yeah although when you think about the world building like I don't know if the Screens had a happy ending. Like, I don't know what happened when they got there. The Federation doesn't have a good track record for leaving settlers behind on some planet and then never checking up on them. And I don't know, maybe... Is there a follow-up? There is no follow-up ever. It's one of the first mentions of the Dominion in Mm -hmm. the whole series. They fled their world from the T-Rogerans and then the T-Rogerans were uh, defeated by the Dominion. I thought, like, what if the Dominion land at these people's world and, and... you know, they're a Federation protectorate and being oppressed now. Basically, like, we don't, we can't say for sure that, that Bajor wasn't putting them in harm's way. Yeah, that's true. Although the other side of it is that Bajor probably was putting themselves in harm's way if they had accepted them. Because, like, the things that they, the reasons that they gave for not accepting them were true, I think. It's not like Canada, where, like, I mean, in the Holocaust or, like, right around then, they, like, rejected this boat of Jews. Mm-hmm. the episode is pretty similar except not to what what was the name of the boat that is the ss st louis the st louis yeah it was a boat of jews that came to canada and they were rejected and i think that this is very different because bajor isn't like canada with like i don't know plentiful resources to share i mean the line from fc blair who was the the Canadian bureaucrat and like advisor to the prime minister uh, who set that policy at a time at the time was none is too many. And the Bajorans sort of do that a little, like they could have let that kid land. Yeah. And they're like, no, because like it wasn't going to put them in any danger or use up their like scarce resources taken by the Cardassians to let him go there. I also think in the real world of like, I don't know, the biggest acceptor of refugees from Syria is Jordan, which is like mm-hmm. not a rich country at all. No, um, they've also accepted tons and tons of Palestinians. Right. And and Jordan's stance was basically just like, you're fleeing for your lives. Come here. You can stay here. They don't do a whole lot to help them, but they're like, you can you can stay here. Yeah, it is admirable. 
And also, like, our, our families came to Canada at different times, um, but I'm pretty sure that when my family came here, or at least some of them, they're just, like, were not immigration restrictions in Canada. Like, I think that they they arrived at, like, the very beginning of the 20th century, I think a few in the late 19th century, and it, like, predates kind of racial and national preferences in Canadian immigration law. And they were basically just like, I mean, part of the the subtext of this is that they were trying to steal all the land from the indigenous people. Mm, um, yeah. But they basically <laughs> were like, if you if you show up here, you're you're in. And we kind of could manage that. Yeah. I, I think there's like dubious morality of saying like, we're a settler colonial state and I'm in and then nobody else. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's, yeah, actually, like, my my family, like, like, they came to Canada, but they weren't sure they were going to. Like, apparently, they almost went to Australia. They thought about going to Israel, and they ended up on a boat to Canada. Why don't we go to Reb Alert now? Um, we have two people that I am very, very fond of and that I'm super, super happy to have on the show. Belay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs> Welcome to Reb Alert. Today with us, we have Naomi Kramer, Program Manager at Jewish Immigrant Aid Services of Toronto, and Jody Block, the Manager of Community Engagement at Jewish Immigrant Aid Services of Toronto. Naomi and Jody, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Really excited to have you here. We're doing an episode talking about refugee issues today, and I think we have exactly the right people. And I, I should say, like, we it's quite a fortuitous time to have this conversation when it's something that is really fresh in the in the headlines right now. So thank you so much for being here. It's our pleasure. Thank you. So we like to start things off with a, an introduction about Star Trek from our, our guests. So what is your relationships to Star Trek? And if you have one, uh, we have like all across the board, different levels of expertise in the Star Trek world. So we can start with Jody. Yikes. This is a tough one. I am not so familiar with Star Trek. The one thing I can say is uh, this is a, an honorable mention for my rabbi, Rabbi Ed at the Nariver. I was recently in a position where I wanted to thank him for something. And I spoke to his daughter and asked how I could thank him. Um, and she said, he's a huge Trekkie. You could get him uh, Star Trek paraphernalia, except he has a lot of it. <laughs> so it might be tough. I think this may inspire me to go back and do a little digging into Star Trek, but I, I can't really sell myself as a big fan. Truly no pressure <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, you can tell your rabbi that he's uh, got a shout out on our podcast. <laughs> I'm totally going to send him the podcast. Of course. <laughs> Naomi, do you want to tell us your, uh, your Star Trek experience? I want to say that I watched next generation but like in bits and pieces never in order when it was like on tv but that truthfully i am very embarrassed to say that i have been known to in public groups mix up star trek and star wars which is a massive faux pas <laughs> i recognize um that's so bad. i yeah that's real bad right <laughs> at least star trek i've seen i've never seen any of the star wars movies but anyway, either way, I, I know nothing, and uh, I'm still happy to be here. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Shorthand right. for me is Star Trek is the very Jewish one. We once had a rabbi on that actually thought he was on Star Wars and the Jews, so you're in good company. 
Okay, at least I know which one I'm on. <laughs> so both of you work at Jewish Immigrant Aid Services of Toronto, or JIAS. Tell us what JIAS is and what you do there. JIAS Toronto started about 100 years ago as an organization to help Jewish refugees fleeing Europe. And it obviously has evolved over many generations with different groups of immigrants and refugees coming. So at different stages of Jaius's evolution, sometimes Jaius was directly involved in the bringing of refugees. Sometimes it was mostly here to welcome new immigrants upon arrival. And over time, it became not only a Jewish agency, but continues to also be a Jewish agency. So, you know, over time, we added to our settlement work to welcome and support new immigrants. We also added the language component, and then that added lots of people who are not necessarily Jewish. And then in 2015, probably this is the biggest shift that really impacts some of our work today. In 2015, at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, Jaius became a sponsorship agreement holder, which is a thing that they had actually done historically is sponsor refugees, but hadn't been doing that part of immigration work for a number of years. And in 2015 had become a sponsorship agreement holder sort of right in time for the Syrian refugee crisis, not necessarily knowing that that was going to be an area of our work ever. And all of a sudden, it became a huge part of our work. And now Jaius is deeply involved in sponsorship of refugees and welcome and settlement for refugees, as well, as well as welcome and settlement and language services for any new immigrant or refugee who comes to Canada. And I know, Naomi, you have kind of a special connection to Jaius. In the early 80s, as many people I think might know, Eastern Europe was not a great place to be and also not a great place to be as a Jewish person. And my family was in Romania. That's where we are from. The way to get out of Romania and some other places was to go to Israel. You were allowed to leave if you were going to Israel. But lots of people like my parents uh, decided they wanted to come to North America, specifically to Canada, because previous relatives had already come to Canada. And so my parents did this thing where they went to Italy to sort of wait for paperwork to get to Canada. It just so happens that at the time, the Joint Distribution Committee and HIAS, which is Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society in the U.S., were the ones coordinating in Europe all of these Eastern European immigrants trying to get to their next landing place. And they said, we are no longer helping people get to Canada and the U.S. Now we are only helping people get to Israel. But my uncle had already landed in Canada six months earlier. And so my grandmother like pulled like a Yiddish guilt trip on the man at the highest desk in her broken Yiddish and his broken Yiddish. And she said, like, but you can't make me choose between my children. I'm here waiting for paperwork with my daughter. You're going to make her go to Israel. And my son's already in Canada and you can't make me choose. Don't you have children? And so, of course, they helped with their paperwork and they connected them to Jaius in Winnipeg, which became our sponsors. That was before I was born, actually, but became our sponsors. And that's how my family ended up in Canada. That's amazing. Great Jaius story. Great Jaius story. It truly is a wonderful organization. And I feel it is my like personal responsibility to be here at Jaius. So why should Jews, as Jews, care about refugees? There are so many reasons why Jews should care about refugees. Naomi just told a story about how her family came to 
Canada as refugees. And that is a story of many Jewish families in Canada and in North America. Many of us come from previous generations of refugees and we have had that experience. We know firsthand in the post-war years, we heard firsthand that you know none is too many and we know what it is to be turned away and to not have a home. That in and of itself is a reason why Jews need to care about refugees. We, we have been refugees. In the Torah, it says in different ways, we were strangers in a strange land and that we must care for the stranger. It even says we must love the stranger and we need to welcome the stranger. It says it in so many different ways. Love the stranger, welcome the stranger, care for the stranger, uh, over 36 times, actually. The rabbis talk about, you know, why so many times? Why are we told to love the stranger and welcome the stranger so many times? There are a number of reasons. One of them is that we were strangers in a strange land. We have that experience and it's our duty to then in turn care for others. Another is that it's not necessarily instinctive and we need to be reminded constantly. Hmm. It's our nature to, when people are different, to not necessarily bring them into our into our world and into our circle. And I think we're reminded to do that so many times because we do have a responsibility to others. We have a responsibility as human beings. We have responsibility as Jews to one another, but we also have a larger responsibility to humanity. It's not just that it's not in our nature necessarily, but it's not easy. It is very right. difficult to welcome people who are different than us. Um, it's hard enough to welcome people that are similar to us. And, you know, you... It's, it's hard enough when you have to welcome someone into your family, let's say, who's very similar to you, maybe, um, when people get married and, and bring new people into their families. It's very difficult to welcome people and not just accept them, but truly welcome them. And that's a different thing. And I think that's why we're so careful at Jaius to always use the word welcoming, because it's really important that people feel like they belong. Right? You are part of this society. You're not just here temporarily. And you don't have to like thank everybody for letting you be here. Like You're supposed to be here now, and this is where you are, and this is where you belong. For decades, Jaius, which was founded by Jews to assist Jewish refugees, for decades, Jaius helped Jewish refugees come here. And then when we had sponsorship agreement holder with the government uh, in the 2015 time when really the refugee crisis was on everybody's mind and in all the headlines, the question arose, you know, we had to ask ourselves, what is our responsibility to the world, right? Like today we're lucky. There is not, uh, there are not a lot of Jewish refugees in the world today. The majority of refugees are not Jewish. So does that mean it's not our problem? Of course not, right? It so happens that in these weeks, the issue of refugees is in the headlines, but really most of the time, <laughs> you know, the, the headlines have faded, right? Yeah. But the refugee crisis has worsened significantly over the last two years. I think the the numbers now of displaced people in the world, whether they're technically refugees being across a border or, or just displaced, you know, within a border, it's I think it's 80 million, 80 million displaced people in the world today. And I think the number of refugees is closer to 25 or 26 million people who are refugees uh, as defined by UNHCR. I mean, that is just a huge, huge number. And it's not something that we can look away from. And as a sponsorship agreement holder, our agency has a responsibility. We're a partner of the government. And we have this 
responsibility, but also this incredible opportunity that is pretty unique to Canada, actually, where Canadian citizens can take part in sponsoring refugees and actually change lives and save lives and bring refugees to Canada. So that's exactly where I wanted to bring you, which is that um, we have many international listeners. So can you explain what that refugee sponsorship program looks like, what your role is as an agreement holder, and you know specifically what the on-the-ground work is that you take part in? So there are a few different ways that people can immigrate to Canada in general. And within those few different ways to immigrate to Canada, there's a pool called refugees, right? And even within refugees, there are different ways that people arrive in Canada and apply for refugee status. So there are people that come to Canada on some sort of temporary status and then apply to become a refugee upon arrival. Another possibility is government-sponsored refugees, that the the government is um, accepting and bringing people from abroad directly. Then there's this process called private sponsorship. And even within private sponsorship, there are two different sort of streams of private sponsorship. There's the private sponsorship program, what we're talking about that when we say we're a sponsorship agreement holder. That's when an organization, an institution, has an agreement with the government that they can sponsor refugees. And that means that that organization is going to collect the money that is required and there's a government standardized amount of money per family members, like depending on how big or small the family is, to fund the first year of life of that family in Canada. What that means is that Jaius is engaging usually with a number of community groups and families and community members to collect the money and in groupings sponsor families of refugees, right? So it could be one person being sponsored could be a family unit or could be 10 people sponsored by Jaius is a family unit. And then there's one more way that private sponsorship happens, which is called a group of five. I feel like in the last six or seven years, this was in the news a lot because it was a very popular method through the Syrian refugee crisis to bring refugees to Canada from Syria and Iraq at the time. And that's where five people who are Canadian citizens or Canadian permanent residents, and they have to sign an agreement, the five of them in directly with the government, saying that they're going to sponsor this particular family. So that's where Jaius comes in. We are the sponsorship group category, but we also work with refugees who come any of the other ways as well, right? Like any of the other people can still come to Jaius for welcome and settlement and support throughout the time. We're just not the agency collecting their funding and distributing their funding or writing their paperwork unless we sponsor them, in which case we're doing all that. So when people sponsor as part of a group of five, they need to submit all kinds of documentation to the government to receive the, the status to do the sponsorship. The reason why it's in some ways preferable or easier to work with a SAW, like Jaius, a sponsorship agreement holder, is that we are pre-approved. That's basically what what SAW status means. It means that we are pre-approved by the government. And one interesting thing is we are the only specifically Jewish sponsorship agreement holder in Canada. A lot of sponsorship agreement holders are actually churches, but Jaius is unique because we're the only Jewish sponsorship agreement holder in Canada. Uh, We're also the only Jewish agency with the sole mission of welcoming and settling immigrants and refugees. Yeah, because we're a settlement agency and a sponsorship agreement holder, which is also quite rare. Many sponsorship agreement holders are churches, 
which do the part of submitting the application to the government. They have the volunteers as part of their congregation who then uh, do volunteer to help settle refugees when they arrive. But we are both a sponsorship agreement holder and a settlement agency. So while we're working with, with Canadian citizens who want to be part of that process and welcome refugees, we also have professional staff whose job it is every day to provide settlement services to newcomers, uh, whether they're immigrants or refugees, no matter how they're coming to Canada. And so there's that added benefit when you're working with Jaius of having the professional staff there to support the volunteers and the volunteers to support the professional staff. And it's really a group effort. I think the traditional narrative thinks about a refugee's end goal as getting somewhere safe. But of course, like that journey doesn't end with I'm in Canada and I'm allowed to be here now. Um, there's so much more. And you talked about some of the services that, that Jaius provides. So what does that transition look like? And what's the role of Jaius in, in helping ensure that when refugees arrive here, it's something that can continue to be successful? Jaius Toronto looks at every newcomer as an individual with their own unique journey, their own experiences, their own skills, their own potential. and our goal is to help newcomers create a settlement plan, set goals, and, and, and meet those goals. So we work with each newcomer to create a plan. We have two link schools, Language Instruction for Newcomers to Canada, where permanent residents, uh, including refugees who become permanent residents when they arrive in Canada, can learn English. Provide information orientation, which really means giving a lot of different types of information that might be confusing for people to look up on their own, especially if English or French are not their first language, right? So what do they need to know about how to register their kids for school and camp and after school programs? What do they need to know about what you're supposed to bring to school and camp and after school programs? How do you apply for jobs in Canada? What agencies can they go to for help applying to jobs and resume work and upgrading skills? So we refer them to organizations like JVS and other organizations that help them get job ready. What if they need information about mental health supports in Canada? For example, in the case of refugees, it's often the case that people, or not often, but sometimes the case that people also need mental health supports. So some things we are providing directly and some things we're giving them information to to get them to the organizations that can help them with those specific needs, right? We're providing translation services where necessary. A big thing that we do is also something called community connections. That's how the government refers to it, but it's actually kind of, it's a good terminology. Really, it's about getting people connected to what their life is actually going to be like here. Because like you said, Josh, arriving in Canada is not the end, right? Once you get here, hopefully you're going to have a fulfilling life here too. It's not like, okay, so now I'm safe, but I'm not going to do anything for the rest of my life. A lot of people come and they're young and they have young children and they have a whole life ahead of them and they want it to be a full life, right? And they want to take advantage of the opportunities afforded to them in Canada. So in the, in the Jewish sense, um, that would be things like, do you want to go to synagogue? What does synagogue look like for you? What did it look like for you back home? And what might you envision synagogue could look like? Here is a myriad option in the greater Toronto area, for example, for Jewish life. Um, things like, you know, after school programs and Jewish day school and things like that. 
life cycle events. How do you participate in those? You know, we work with clients all the time who then they have questions about things like where do you get married? How do you get married in Canada? But also, you know, with a recent refugee population that we've been working with, with the Yazidi population, they have a very specific practice around death and burial. And they came to the conclusion that they're a big enough community now they need to figure out how to do burials in Canada. Eventually someone's going to pass away, right? When you have a community, you go through the whole life cycle. So this month we watched a Star Trek episode called Sanctuary. The premise of the episode is that a group of refugees show up at this alien planet called Bajor and Bajor themselves have recently emerged from an occupation and like an oppression from another, another alien species. Eventually Bajor turns away this, uh, this alien species that comes to their planet. Um, And they say things like, we have to look after our own before we help others, or why do they have to come here when there are other places that can help them? I think it's a rare time in Star Trek that our heroes kind of turn out to be the villains, which is sort of the case in this episode. And the episode ends with a tragedy caused by Bajor's inaction. So what do you say to Canadians who might be thinking, in principle, I'd like to help refugees, but... I don't know. I guess there's a lot of things that are important to say to Canadians about this. I guess I'll name a few of the common things that I think refute the desire to reject refugees. One is that refugees and immigrants add a lot more than they take from our society. With immigrants and refugees come incredible economic opportunities, a vibrant workforce, a younger population often, many, many benefits to Canadian society. And it's actually one of the strongest arguments that the government has for why they are working so hard to grow the immigration program in general, not specifically around refugees, but the immigration program in general is that we actually need population growth for economic growth in this country. So that's one argument that's not so much the moral argument, but is an important argument to make. Then there is, of course, the moral case to make that we have economic prosperity and physical space and to deny people an opportunity full stop would be like morally reprehensible. And that's not to say that Canada can be solely responsible for the refugee crisis either, right? That we must hold other countries accountable simultaneously to welcoming and accepting refugees. We can't be the only country doing it or one of the few countries do it. It's a a global crisis and it needs to be addressed globally. The other piece of that is just like a sense that just because we as Canadians, many of us have come to Canada as immigrants, some some as refugees, some not exactly as refugees, or before we used terms like refugees to describe what was going on in various parts of the world, we should feel a sense of obligation, I think. That's also part of this sort of like fuzzy moral um, component. It's hard to describe exactly why, but it would be odd for us to walk in the door and close it behind completely. The last piece is also, of course, accepting refugees is not like the whole puzzle, right? When people make the case, you hear this a lot in Canada, I think, 
people saying, well, why don't we take care of our own first? We have lots of people who need help here in Canada. Absolutely. None of us in immigration social services would argue that other social services are not important. We would argue that we have to do both. We have to help people who need help here in Canada as well as refugees coming to Canada. Um, and once they are here, they are part of our fabric as well. So they are receiving and should be able to receive any social service. And the last piece is that, again, it's not only that we're doing the refugee piece. Obviously, there's diplomacy that needs to happen in order to prevent future refugee crises. We can't just allow this never-ending cycle of violence and oppression all around the world either, right? We have to do all the things. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that is so amazing about private sponsorship of refugees uh, is that, you know, it sort of busts the myth that refugees, for example, receive more financial support than pensioners do, which is something like I saw all the time on social media and, you know, during the Syrian refugee crisis, a lot of people who were against it were saying, as you said, you know, we have to take care of our own people first and refugees are benefiting. And refugees do not get more financial assistance from the federal government than Canadian pensioners do. Um, And the whole idea of private sponsorship is to actually ease the burden on the government. When we talk about people privately sponsoring, they're literally, as Naomi mentioned before, they're literally raising the funds to support refugees in their first year of Can- in Canada. And during that first year in Canada, refugees are not eligible for any financial support from the government. They're being supported entirely by their private sponsors. A lot happens in that first year. The starting point to one year later, there's a tremendous amount that happens honing of English skills, boosting uh, all kinds of uh, skills that are crucial to navigating Canadian society and integrating into Canadian society. So in that first year, a lot happens that helps get refugees to a point where they're increasingly self-sufficient and ready to enter enter the job market, you know, enter, uh, succeed in, in schooling, uh, further their education, etc. I want to add to that one piece, which is, I think, a misconception about refugees that also sort of plays into these stereotypes and confusions, which is that refugees are extremely diverse in terms of their everything, every every aspect Mm -hmm. of life. They are diverse, right? Not all refugees were impoverished before they came to Canada, right? Not all uh, refugees were uneducated before they came to Canada, right? Refugees often are coming with perfectly functional professional lives before whatever catastrophe happened that caused them to have to flee. I've heard you know people say things like, but I see pictures of refugees with cell phones and leather jackets. And I'm like, well, I don't really understand why a cell phone and a leather jacket would give you a sign that they are safe right. <laughs> under the impending regime change that is bombing their country. Their cell phone and their leather jacket, because they used to be a doctor, is irrelevant now that the government is shifting into a violent regime and their medical license isn't relevant under this new regime or whatever. It's all sort of mixed up is these ideas of poverty and extreme needs. There are extreme needs and there are also not sometimes, right? We definitely work with people who are new to Canada and arrive as refugees and 
have a lot of skills that are extremely beneficial to starting their life here quickly. And other refugees who are experiencing excruciating trauma and are in need of a myriad support. For sure. I, I always, whenever I hear that cell phone statement, I'm like, if you were running for your life, well, you wouldn't take your cell phone? <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> it's definitely not a sign that they're okay and well off and it's all good. They have a cell phone, you know. We <laughs> and, and really, if you were talking about being Jews, I think all the time about the story of the Hungarian Jews from Budapest who being taken on the trains with their suitcases and their fur coats because they did not anticipate what was coming for them, right? It's being an intellectual and being having money does not preclude you from being a refugee. Nothing can save you in those really horrific times is the sad part. Absolutely. I sort of have chills as I think about scenario. And that that's what's happening today in many places. When we look at an image of the people running to the um, airports in Afghanistan, there are doctors and lawyers with surely nice leather jackets and smartphones trying to get out of their country that they've lived in their whole lives. And the other thing is you don't even see what they are leaving behind. You just see what's in that one foot. That's like, that's right. that could be everything that they have that they're taking with them. I mean, in that right. Case. Or they could have a mansion, but that doesn't mean they're, they don't need to leave. That, I think that's yeah, so critical, right? That's what I mean. Is yeah. like if they're leaving behind a mansion, you like who cares? They're still leaving. We uh, we've heard a lot of people say that refugees pose a threat to Canada's security. Um, refugees are seeking security. They're seeking protection from whatever threat they're facing. This week, Canadian airports will be the sites of some first tentative steps in Canada: the door to a new life the end of a long wait to see family again. Refugees who have fled Syria are slowly beginning to arrive now. They are mostly families who are being privately sponsored by Canadians. And today, CBC News was there. Our, our real shift to sponsoring refugees who are not Jewish was in 2015, 2016. And at that time, um, this is important to mention in, in the context of this podcast, uh, the headlines started and and i think all of us will remember the tragic images of a little toddler alan curdy who didn't survive and was found on the beach and the images uh i think were so powerful for people all around the world but there was a canadian connection they had family in bc and i think it really really called out to canadians to uh, to assist and to help bring refugees to canada at that moment people just started calling Gaius. People in the Jewish community, people with no affiliation to the Jewish community who just Googled sponsorship agreement holders in Canada. I mean, we our phones literally started ringing off the hook. And I'm really not exaggerating. And it was so beyond anything we had ever experienced that we, we just decided to hold an open meeting. And we would tell everyone who called, we're gonna be having a meeting. This was mid-September, 2015. Come to the meeting and you'll learn about sponsoring refugees. Timely for this podcast, that meeting was between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right? It was like in it was that, definitely in that crazy zone. week. So we hold this meeting. We have not publicized the meeting. We're just telling people who are calling us. 
and well over 100 people arrived to this meeting in the Lipper Green building uh, in Tamari Hall to learn about sponsoring refugees, okay? And in that room, you had representatives from lots of different congregations. And in the year that followed, we ended up working with roughly 30, what we call constituent groups. So that's groups of sponsors. And I think close to 20 of them were from congregations and were doing this on behalf of a, of a synagogue that wanted to sponsor refugees. And we worked in partnership with them to bring refugees to Canada. I mean, it's an incredible, it's really an incredible story. Like when we had, on a, in a regular year at that time, Jais had the capacity to sponsor maybe, I don't know, what was it, Naomi, like 10 refugees, okay? But the government opened the gates and said, um, you know, as many applications as you could get in by, I think it was March 31st. 2016 and we were able to submit applications for 130 roughly refugees and that means that you know these 30 groups of people raised money to save 130 lives i mean that that is huge yeah and that was just the beginning that was just that first year right the work is ongoing so that year was sort of the big one right where we we kind of dropped everything we dropped everything to do this answering phones, answering questions, working with the sponsors, explaining the process, answering, you know, they had so many questions that we didn't even necessarily have the answer to because we were in new territory. So it was a, a huge undertaking and it resulted in 130 refugees arriving in 2016, 2017. We weren't exclusively working with sponsors in the Jewish community, but that was a huge effort on the part of the Jewish community. It was a huge response and it was really inspirational. Today, there are a number of congregations that continue to do the work and the refugees are, you know, from all over. We, we see a lot of uh, people in the Jewish community with a great interest in sponsoring uh, Eritrean and Sudanese refugees from Israel. And sometimes that comes from a personal connection. Uh, very often you'll, you'll, you'll get a call from, I'll get a call from someone or an email saying, you know, my daughter studied in Israel for the year and she met so-and-so and we want to sponsor them and bring them to Canada. So sometimes it's from a personal connection. Sometimes it's just purely an ideological conviction to to help refugees. But there's a lot of activism in the Jewish community around refugee sponsorship, and it's quite amazing. So in addition to it being from the incredible efforts of congregations in the Jewish community in Canada, it, it is also in part due to the incredible efforts of the two of you and your colleagues at Jaius. And so thank you so much for the incredible work that you do. It's it's really inspiring. Thank you. Jody and Naomi, thank you so much for being here. And where can people learn more about, uh, about Jaius? JaiusToronto.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Wow, Josh, they are actual heroes. Like I felt inspired uh, yeah. listening to them talk. Like they are, they are who we need in this world. I know, I know. Thank you for doing your work, Naomi and Jody, and everyone at Jaius and everyone who helps refugees. Yeah, like I just can't imagine more important work. Honestly, it's just it's amazing. Um, should we talk about some some Jewish stuff? So Jody and Naomi had mentioned some Jewish rationales for why it's important to help refugees. Any views on that? I mean, I think we say it every year on Passover. And I like it. I like that. Even if it's like made up too. you know, like the we you were a slave in Egypt, and you should be nice to the stranger. And that's 
that's just like full stop. When Lex Roferg was on the show, he made the point that that story is more interesting if you take the historical perspective that those events did not historically yeah. occur. Because like, if they did occur, it's just like, this bad thing happened to you and don't let it happen to someone else. This transforms it to like, we are going to construct a narrative around anti-slavery, anti-oppression. Maybe that has shifted over time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's very forward thinking. I think it's beautiful. There's also in Judaism this concept of the city of refuge. It is certain prescribed cities in ancient Judah and Israel where a person who committed not murder, but like a negligent homicide could seek refuge to avoid being killed out of revenge by the by the family of the, the person who they killed. I, I've also thought about, you know, we have this this line said over and over again in Torah, like, do not oppress the stranger. But it's it's a little bit murky right because yeah because i mean i don't know how much that's followed in israel for example or in general in the jewish community it's like not super welcoming to strangers i also think like there is a shift that happens to the word the, the word that it says is do not oppress the gare and i think in like the original context of the the word gare it means like a migrant like the foreign yeah. national living among you but later generations of like rabbinic thought would think of the gear as convert. And like gear is the, the colloquial word we use right. for, for convert. And that is a totally different standard to, I mean, we shouldn't oppress converts either. Um, but to limit that, that like phrase said over and over again, do not oppress the gear to converts as opposed to uh, everyone is, um, is pretty narrowing. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have you ever been to like the part of Tel Aviv that's like, like behind the bus station yeah it's awful yeah i don't know it feels like the the failure of the jewish state to me um that like I that bus station yeah. no just the situ no the, the neighborhood behind it where you have oh, like see. eritrean and sudanese refugees who yeah. come to israel for no other reason than that they are a running for their lives and b they want to like throw their lot in life in with israel and many of them for like religious reasons or or cultural reasons they they think of israel as a place that can be sanctuary and they get there and are told that they're like foreign infiltrators and are are quite mistreated and it's i think it's a very bad situation yeah what do you think would have happened if israel was denied independence if and the same thing would have been the case if Draylon 2 was not available mm -hmm. where would the jews have gone and where would the Scria, Scrians have gone? Yeah, the Scrian one is a broken question because the Federation can be like, well, we got a lot of other places to go. Yeah, um, it was kind of a cop out, actually, that they did that because they made it so that like the Bajorans were not actually that bad. Yeah, it's hard to think of the counterfactual of what happens without an Israel, especially in those post-war years where you have like hundreds of thousands of, of stateless people. It's also hard to like think about does... Does the like to to keep running the counterfactual down the road of like does the exodus of eight hundred thousand Jews from North Africa and the Middle East still occur or does it occur differently? Are they oppressed but have nowhere to go? Also, what happens in those countries if huge portions of their I don't know in places like Egypt and Syria and Algeria and Iraq and uh, Morocco Jews were like an important part of the social fabric and the fact mm -hmm. that they were like suddenly driven out I think caused like deep damages to those countries that they probably don't appreciate but like 
surely they must have. Yeah, because they were not small, small mm-hmm. communities, definitely. I had, um, it's not a person I know personally. It's only someone that I know through the correspondence with my great grandparents. Um, but he is a, a cousin of my great grandmother's who survived the war because he was working in Russia when Poland was invaded. And he tried to go home and he found a Polish family living in his family's house and had taken all their property and there was nothing that he could do he had no recourse there was no this was like a small village like who who you're gonna go to the p- local police and as the jew and say kick this polish family out they have my stuff like he he just was in a refugee camp and then eventually in israel like go home was not an option for him and i mean yeah. poland is a country that like poland had pogroms in 1946 the nazis left and they like continued killing jews it's a matter of great revisionism in, in modern day Poland. Yeah, I, I wonder that too, if like, if uh, Holocaust survivors would have really just gone back to where they were expelled from. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens? I don't think I've, I, I can think of a situation where refugees really go back. It's certainly not part of Canada's refugee framework. When Canada takes a refugee, the understanding is that for the oh, most yeah, part, they like establish their lives here. I mean, I mean, UNRWA is like the big elephant in the room, right? That you have today millions of Palestinians living in in Lebanon and some in Jordan and also internally in the West Bank and Gaza don't have a resettlement status, but there no. are, you know, very tilted reasons for that. And, you know, you could argue they've been used as props. Like there, there isn't another place in the world where... Like if you were born... Or like 70 years after the conflict, you're living in a refugee camp. Yeah. And also like the children born in that, in that refugee camp and their children are also, they're, they're all considered refugees. Right. I mean, in a, in a few decades, everyone who lived through those will be gone and you will only have descendants living in what are still called refugee camps. Yeah. But Um, I mean, I think that they would probably also argue that it's, it wasn't 70 years ago. It's like ongoing. Right. This is um, not the only depiction of refugees in Star Trek. I think refugees is something Star Trek deals with a lot. Actually, I was thinking about how the first time we meet the Bajora, which is what the Bajorans are originally called in the episode Ensign Row, the model for them is like a lot closer to Palestinian refugees. Like they're, um, they're not refugees on their own world. They're dispersed in these camps and they... You know, the Federation casts aspersions on them, alleging involvement in terrorism, and you have, like, competing militant groups. It yeah. reminds me very much of, like, the, the situation of the Palestinians in the 90s when this episode was was being made, where you yeah. had, like, the PLO getting getting kicked out of Jordan and going to Lebanon and so on. Have you seen the Enterprise episode Twilight? It's going to be a no for me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a cool one. They, um... The Zindi succeed in destroying Earth, and so like all of humanity is this sort of like Battlestar Galactica esque. Oh, whoa! Caravan. Did they resolve it in one episode? N- they hit the reset button and oh, you know, temporal so, yes. shenanigans. They don't blow up Earth, um, <laughs> but but yeah, they they end up resolving the problem by erasing a bug from the timeline or something. Yeah, um, of course. But the the funny little joke in it is that the planet they settle on at the end is. Is SETI Alpha 5, like the one that Khan would get dropped off on? SETI Alpha 5! So you know that oh. that the other planet's going to explode and it's going to turn into an uninhabitable desert world in a century, but they like never mention it. Um, 
Um, and there's like a lot of characters throughout Star Trek that are that are refugees. I guess I kind of think of like all of the Maquis kind of. That yeah, way. like uh, their homes have been taken. Certainly like Chakotay's home is, um, yeah. is taken from him. Garrick is um, a refugee, not of a conflict, oh, but yeah. of like political persecution. Mm-hmm. He's like a asylum seeker. And and I guess in um, in Picard, like every single person we meet is a refugee because the the XBs are refugees and the Romulans are like all a giant diaspora and the androids are sort of refugees of sorts. Ooh, yeah. yeah. When's that season coming out? The next one? That's coming out soon. So they're doing Ooh. Lower Decks is coming out now. And then I think it's going to be Prodigy next. And I'm not sure the order after that, if it's going to be Discovery 4 and Picard 2 or if they're flipping those. But they're sh- they're shooting it right now. Prodigy? Oh. Did we talk Prodigy about that? Prodigy is a um, kids show. It's sort of sort of like Star Wars Rebels kind of thing. Okay, okay. Coming out soon. I think in like four weeks from when this episode airs. Are you going to watch it with your daughter? Um, we'll see. I'll have to pre-screen to see if they're scary. <laughs> right now she only watches two Star Treks. She watches Star Trek Frog, which is the short, um, the one with the tardigrade where they're like traveling through the original series and and Star Trek Princess, which is the short where, with, where like Michael Burnham is a kid and being told the story in Africa. And... <laughs> Star Trek Frog is okay. Star Trek Princess is a little meh. But to her, that is the the entire canonical Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember finding it super scary as a kid. It was always like, okay, but I need the covers. <laughs> I guess uh, Guinan is a, is a refugee also. Oh, yeah. They they hardly Guinan ever mention that. They really, it really only comes up in the context of your home is also about to be destroyed by the Borg. Even Q is kind of a refugee at some points. Yeah, he's like on the outs a little bit. I, I love the Voyager episode Counterpoint. That's the one where they're they're hiding the there's there's almost like a like a Jews in the floorboards vibe to it because they're they're trying to <laughs> transport these telepaths across an enemy space that wants to like kill all telepaths and they hide them in a initiated transporter beam, kind of like Scotty in the loop. Um and they have to hide they have to hide Tuvok and and Vorik in there also because they're you know Vulcans, right? Um, it's a great Janeway episode because she like she, you can't tell if she's like in love with the guy or trying to trick him, but of course it's Janeway, so she's trying to trick him, and it's like it's <laughs> it's a really good one. There's also that one. I think we actually talked about it, uh, the Voyager episode where they like requested resources from from Janeway, and she was like, "Well, this is what we can give you," and. It was it actually had similar vibes, I thought, to Yeah, yeah, that one is um, Day of Honor. One of my yeah, it's Alul. Right. Of course, we have to mention Day of Honor. Yeah, Day of <laughs> Honor. Trek's only right, Alul episode. <laughs> uh, Chava, did you find yeah. an Afi Komen in this episode? I did. Or uh, Adam finds my Afi <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> um, okay, so at the beginning of the episode, when they're like. Uh, when it's Verani, is that how you pronounce the name? I forget. Yeah, sorry. At the beginning of the episode, when Verani's performing, and then at the like right after he performs, the Bajorans are clapping, and they clap with their like palms to palms. In the beginning, <laughs> well, they switch after this whole like this whole screen thing. They switch. 
they switch their way of clapping and it's it's like back of the hand knuckle palm. to palm knuckle to palm and this is like a very culturally distinct thing about the Bajorans. <laughs> i mean what are we to believe that this is some sort of uh <laughs> a magic xylophone or something boy i really hope somebody got fired for that blunder uh, and like kind of think that it's very similar to something the Jews would do making things like more intense than they have to be like for example the kippah there I feel like there are a lot of instances in Judaism where that's like a behavior that will display is try to actually stick out um wear a kippah like even if you, you're not praying or you're not eating it's like become commonplace to wear them all the time and my mom always tells me that like when she was growing up in her house there was like a really strictly enforced like as soon as you wake up you have to go wash your hands but she didn't realize yeah. until like well into adulthood like into the last like a couple years ago that that's like a jewish thing she thought her parents were just like oh, persnickety yeah. about it no yeah you're supposed to yeah like you have the it's called nagelwasser mm-hmm. in uh yiddish a lot of people have like fancy bowls that they keep next to their bed with the with the cup yeah anyway that was that was the f komen i like it Good eye, Dr. Adam. Yeah, good eye, Dr. Adam. What about you, Josh? Did you find an Afikoman? Yeah, and it's also about Varani, but it's not about his what? hands. It's about his ears. Holy. And it's also an inconsistency. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so he is like one of the only Bajorans who doesn't wear the Bajoran earring. And maybe it was a wardrobing mistake, but maybe it was a choice because like all the extras have the earrings. So I, I kind of think it wasn't just a mistake. Um, and he's this like revered cultural figure. And maybe we can speculate that like Bajoranness can have different components to it. And the like cultural ones are obviously very important to him. He's like, he cares a lot about restarting the like Bajoran flute scene, but um, but the religious stuff, not so much. And it's sort of similar to like, the intersubjective quality that Jewish experiences have. So I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I like to think that it was on purpose. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Your Hebrew School homework for next month is the original series episode Patterns of Force and the Enterprise episodes Stormfront Part 1 and Part 2. Our opening fanfare is arranged and performed by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Thank you so much to our guests, Naomi Kramer and Jody Block of Jaius. Shana Tova, everyone. See you next month. Shana Tova.